Welcome everybody back into Down the Line. As always, I'm your host Carson Brever, and today we are exactly one week away from the beginning of the U.S. Open, which is obviously tremendously exciting. The fourth Grand Slam of the year has potential for some history to be made, obviously on the men's side with Novak Djokovic having won the first three Grand Slams of the year. And there was some more news that occurred over these past couple weeks that may have opened that window up for him just a little bit wider. And it's really unfortunate news, but that is that Rafa Nadal is going to be out for the duration of this year with his foot injury. And Roger Federer is having another surgery, is slated to miss the U.S. Open, and it seems will probably be out for the year as well. So... To me, it seemed very obvious that Rafa was the clear primary challenger to Djokovic in that pursuit. He will not be there. Fed, I don't think you could have said was in that same conversation, but is obviously a real high-quality, top-10-level guy no matter what. We saw him play basically at that level when he was out there healthy this year. And I think that the significance of this news goes beyond just the U.S. Open and whatever we could potentially see there because... It feels like, in some respect, we actually have arrived very near to the end of an era. And I say that cautiously, because obviously there have been times when people have made that assumption previously, and I don't mean a complete end of the era, because I think Rafa is going to be fine after he recovers. I thought that he was playing excellent tennis this year and last year, and I think he is still a cut above everybody other than Novak Djokovic. He's only 35, and yeah, injuries have been a thing for him for a very long time. He had his brutal stretches in 2015 and 2016, and he always had the tendonitis, and he's never been the healthiest guy, and he's always come out of it on the other end, and he's been fine. He will now have missed three of the last five slams. U.S. Open last year, he missed because of COVID. That was an injury. Wimbledon this year was rest for his foot injury, and it ended up obviously not giving him the sort of recovery that he needed. So that sucks, but I do think Roth is going to be fine. But of course, Roger Federer has defined this era of tennis as much as anybody, if not more. And even though he also had his own era from 2004 to 2007, or whenever you would say Rafa really became his equal, which I think a lot of people would point to that 2008 Wimbledon final and say, okay, that's when Rafa wasn't just this guy who was dominating on clay. He was that level of a threat to Roger on his best surface as well, at places where he had been dominating for so long. Even though maybe that's the defining stretch of Fed's career, and for the past 11 years, he's pretty consistently lagged a little bit behind these top two. He's also pretty consistently been the third guy and has obviously won slams and has played in so many of these iconic matches. And a lot of people will tell you he's the greatest player of all time. So to be at the point where it seems almost indisputable that he has lost a significant step and I really did want to hold out to see what level could he get to this year because in 2019, the guy was still phenomenal. He was 53-10. and 10. I think he won four tournaments, obviously had an all-time final against Novak at Wimbledon, was clearly the third best player on tour. And so you never want to make any conclusive statements about what he's going to look like post-injury until you actually see it. 2020 Australian Open also before he initially missed so much time with injury. He was in the semis. And then... This year when he was out there, he was 9-4, and four, he was okay, he played fine, but it was pretty clear to me that in that form, he was not among the top five players in the world. I think he's in that next tier. I think he was still a top 10 guy, but not among those top five, certainly not among the top three. And you could say, okay, well, maybe he would have rounded into form. Maybe he would have played better if he had just been healthier for a more prolonged period. But like, the guy's 40 years old now. He's coming off of multiple consecutive knee surgeries. This is now... Over a year and a half that he's had these issues, and he's 40 years old. So we're not going to see it get better. Like, 
I know that people have counted out Fed before, and in 2013 it was his back, and there have been other points where he's had to climb a tall mountain, and he has successfully done so. And obviously there was a five-year drought from 2012 to 2017, and we can talk about all of this. But this is very clearly different to me. This is fully rational now. This is a guy who's already defied every historical precedent in the sport as far as what's possible in regards to longevity. And now this to me is just past a breaking point. So again, I'm not going to say he can't go out there and be a top 10, top 15 guy. But the question is just how long does he want to do that for? And my guess is probably not that long. Like he's in his 40s now and he knows realistically he's not going to be contending for slams. And I think that Wimbledon this year was sort of a brutal wake up call in that respect. So if he wants to hang around and be a top 10, top 15 guy, I'm all for it. But God knows another recovery from another surgery the, the odds are just long for him at this point. And so, hope for the best from him. I, again, don't think he was going to be a massive contender at the U.S. Open anyways. But this, to me, really feels like we have passed a breaking point. Because I was always optimistic that he would come back and be himself. Because he's done so many incredible things so many times over. But this really feels like a decisive moment. So, that's really unfortunate for Roger. And then for Rafa... You have to look at this, in my opinion, more from the perspective of what does this mean for Novak? Unless you think Rafa's going to be permanently undone by a foot injury, I think you'd be foolish to think that, again, given everything that he's come back from in the past. And what blows my mind is he said after he had that disappointing loss in Washington that he felt okay, that his foot felt better that day. And clearly, things took a turn for the worse from there. I didn't think that loss was all that big of a deal. I thought, hey, he had an off day. Turns out I was very wrong. I thought Lloyd Harris played great. Turns out, I still think he did, but that maybe wasn't the decisive factor. And so the reason I think it's more about Novak is because of the history that's at stake. And I said pretty confidently and have said throughout a majority of this year that Rafa's the only guy I could see reasonably challenging him. Rafa's got more U.S. Open titles. He's historically played very, very well there. And I just think he remains the only peer to Novak Djokovic. On their best days, I think they still absolutely battle. If Novak's on his best day against anybody else, he is just destroying them. He's running through them in an hour and a half, and that's that. But I will say, I have been very impressed by the caliber of play from the next pack of guys. And that is really Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev, and Rublev. And I'm not going to be the guy who comes out here and says that I expect them to ever beat Novak in a best-of-five setting. Like, I've gotten to the point where I thought, ooh, it's going to be very close before. The Australian Open of this year. I thought Medvedev was going to take Novak 5, and I really thought about picking Medvedev. I think that Djokovic has proven enough times over now that that's a foolish thing to do in a best-of-five setting, that he has the mental and the physical toughness to win in those matches, even if he doesn't have his best stuff. So I'm not going to say... Any of these guys are even close to a favorite or they're, they're even his equal. But what I will say is, I feel about as good, maybe as good, period, about the non-big three, big four guys as I ever have, lumping Andy Murray back into that when he was in his prime, because obviously he's better or he was better than any of these guys. But if you just look at what they've done on the year, Medvedev is 40 and 10. Just one in Toronto two weeks ago. Sitipas is 48 and 14. He's been unbelievable this year consistently. Zverev is 38 and 11. I think he's playing maybe the best tennis he ever has, and he just won in Cincinnati. Rublev is 41 and 14. On hard court, the guy has been unbelievable. Like among the four of them, that's a combined winning percentage of 77.3. That's the equivalent of if you were to do it over a career, which is obviously a very different thing, but nevertheless, 
That's like what Andy Murray was for his career. That's like a top 10 winning percentage of the open era. And on hard, they're even better. I think you could argue for any of these guys that hard is their best surface. Certainly for Medvedev, Zverev, and Rublev, and Sitsipas, I think probably too. I mean, Clay makes a case, but I would say he's pretty much equal on the two surfaces. So these guys have won 80% of their matches on hard this year. All four of them were just in the semis in Cincinnati, which is a level of consistency, I would say, that we have very rarely seen from this group and that they're all out there in the deep stages of a tournament. Two of the three of them who played in Toronto were in the semis of Toronto as well. Zverev wasn't at that tournament at all. But I just feel like they're all playing basically as well as they ever have. So we'll still see about the mental toughness, the physical endurance, and a best of five. I think Novak remains the overwhelming favorite because of that. But again, this may be as good as I've ever felt about a non-big three group, non-big four group. Stan Wawrinka obviously was unbelievable. Delpo at his best was unbelievable. But to have four guys of this caliber, I think it's very impressive. So maybe he'll have to beat two of these guys. Maybe he'll have to beat three of these guys if he gets a really tough draw, or maybe one of them does drop off and have a disappointing result, as has historically been the case. Like, we haven't seen all four of these guys make a really impressive deep run simultaneously. And Rublev and Medvedev haven't been at this level for all that long. A couple years for Medvedev, a year and a half for Rublev. But we'll see. I'll go in more depth when I do my U.S. Open preview. But I've been very impressed. And I think you have to give major props to Alexander Zverev in that because obviously the guy goes out there and wins in the Olympics and now won in Cincinnati, 11 straight wins for him. And he cruised through every match in Cincy except for one. And that was against Tsitsipas in the semis, which to me was by far the most significant because we actually saw Alexander Zverev display some pretty outstanding mental toughness. Battle down from two breaks down in the third I mean, that's unthinkable for him. Sitsipas was serving for the match, and it was Sitsipas who doubled then to clinch the break for Zverev to bring it to level footing at 5-all. Like, that's just really impressive stuff. Zverev, obviously, has never been revered for his mental toughness, and I'm not going to overreact to one match and say, oh, he's figured it all out, because in the final, he did double fault against Rublev when he was serving for it. Up 5-2, 30-40, he clinched the break, and he left the door open there. That's kind of what you expect from him. But I think throughout this year, he's trended in the right direction for the most part. And I think that that U.S. Open final last year was about as ugly of a mental performance as I've ever seen from anybody, where he's up two sets to love, and he starts playing, as I've said before, like a 12-year-old, hanging six feet behind the baseline, serving 60-something miles an hour, playing remarkably conservatively, and he was just clearly too tight to actually play good tennis. Maybe he gets in that same spot and he's the same player. He has the same issues. But I do think he's made progress there. And I think that you can look to 2018 when he gets up to world number three and he wins the tour finals. And he had a phenomenal year then. But I think that this is probably the best he's ever played. And really one of the key things in that is the serve for him, particularly the second serve, because the first serve is a weapon. And his serve was on against Rublev. It was really impressive, a key factor. I think he won like 95% of his first serve points in the first set. Like, that is just ridiculous. But the second serve throughout this year, uh, 2020 was obviously a marvel in how terrible his second serve was given his status as a player. In 2021, he's averaging 1.3 doubles per match less. He's winning 6% more of his second serve points. Those are significant marks of improvement. And I think that's huge to his game. If he can just not destroy himself in that respect, you know, there's very few people out there who he can't beat. 
maybe there's nobody out there who he can't beat, but there's very few people out there who he's not the favorite against. And I still think what we saw from him in Tokyo was my favorite tennis ever because he was so aggressive. He was trusting the serve and the forehand so much, and he was coming in, and it was just like, that's fantastic. He wasn't quite as aggressive from the ground maybe in Cincinnati, but he still was able to attack when he needed to, obviously, and he was steady. He was steadier than Rublev in that final for sure, and he played some really effective tennis. So the guy is playing unbelievably. He's 38-11 and 11 on the year. He's got four titles. He's got two 1,000s. He's got an Olympic title. Like, I don't think he's ever put together a resume that strong on a year, and now he's passed Rafa in the world rankings. Not that that means all that much, but he's into that four spot. And I've just been very impressed. And I think that given how fragile he's been, that U.S. Open last year could have been a breaking point for him. It could have been, it could have done permanent damage. And it it seems that that has not at all been the case. And so props to him for that. Props to Medvedev for winning in Toronto as well. I didn't talk about Toronto right away last week. I said, you know what? We're going to get these tournaments back to back. I kind of wanted to see if any trends developed. I wanted to see... If Medvedev wins both of these, you know, he's really coming on strong as a potential challenger to Djokovic. I just kind of wanted to feel it out. And so props to him for winning there. Probably not as impressive as Zverev's title. He didn't have the same caliber of opponents necessarily. His best win was probably Hercats, which is not all that remarkable if you're winning a Masters 1000, but the guy's just a freak. Like, you look at his final against Riley Opelka, of all people, which is very shocking. Opelka, who beat Tsitsipas in the semi, his defense is just unreal. I mean, the court coverage, side to side, the passing shots, the shot making, the ability to be pulled five feet off the court out wide with a serve on the forehand side and recover and find your way back into that point. The ability when Opelka is kicking that serve high to Medvedev's backhand, which gives so many people so much trouble. I mean, it's a 6'9 guy kicking that serve. There's so much on it. And... Opelka's coming in off of it, and he's just getting passed. Like, some of what Medvedev did, turning defense into offense, shot-making on the run, all of those things, movement, just unbelievable. You've come to expect that from him, but I I still don't know the next time we'll see a 6'6 guy who can move like that. You know, Zverev can move. Zverev can move well, and that's part of why he's able to get away with not being as aggressive sometimes as I would maybe like, but Medvedev is a different breed. He's just a different breed, and his defensive instincts are different as well. His anticipation is so much better. He's able to even exaggerate how effective he is as a mover because he knows where he needs to be at all times. So, great tournament from him, and then he had a good run in Cincinnati as well where he lost in the semi. As far as the man he faced, Riley Opelka, again, that's wild. Do I think Opelka's had some revelation? As much as I wish that was the case as an American, I don't think so. If a big server gets hot, this can happen. It doesn't happen often. And normally it's a guy who is probably a cut above Opelka as a player, but John Isner's made five 1,000 finals in his career. He's won one. So yeah, it can happen. Isner's obviously got a more established resume, but Opelka follows a very similar mold and on his best day can do basically the same thing. So yeah, I don't think that there's any permanent change there. I thought that you did see some of the best stuff from him. I liked him coming in. I think that's great. You finish points at the net, high probability. I think that you can see how hard his forehand can be to read because he hits everything open stance and he just has this weird last second flick really. 
And so sometimes his down-the-line forehands just look like he catches it late. And again, normally a guy's much more likely to go close stance if they're going to try to hit it down the line. It's just an easier shot that way. And you didn't really see that from Opelka. So those are things that are always true about him, though. And he just happened to play some of his best tennis and had a really great win and a really great tournament. But at the end of the day, he's 16-16 and on the year. He hadn't been playing all that great in 2021 before this. So he is what he is. He's, you know, a fringe top 30 level guy who can win a lot of matches based on that serve. And I don't even think his forehand's as good as a lot of, you know, the great big forehand, big serve guys historically. So good for him. Great run. Uh, but I'm not getting overly excited about that. Other than that, on the men's side, props to Casper Rudd. He's a guy who has had an unbelievable year. Unbelievable. Dominating on clay. He's got four titles, I think. But... I've always loved him. My question has just been, what level can he get to on hard? I've been a believer, but we've just had to see it consistently. And he made the quarters in both Cincinnati and Toronto. Only had to win a couple matches because he had first-round buys. But that's still impressive, no matter what. And that bodes well. And he gets the quarters in the U.S. Open, man. This guy's knocking on the door of being a real top-ten player. Because on clay, I think he's already undeniably one of the ten best guys on tour. Spout. Consistently being there on hard and grass will be a different beast entirely. We'll see about that. He may not really need it to be at that top 10 level. So props to him. Other things that just stood out to me, Benoit Pair is suddenly winning matches. Uh, I guess he's realized that he's going to lose all of his points. And here's an incredible stat. He has 23 losses this year. 23 losses. Djokovic is probably going to play like 16 tournaments. Where in mid-August, late August, and this guy already has 23 losses, he's taken off one week out of the last 15. Basically, four straight months of tournaments every single week. Like, props to him, I guess, for losing so early in every tournament that he never needs to recover. For a guy who hates tennis, he sure has played a lot of tournaments this year. But again, I think he's realized the stakes and made the quarters in uh, Cincinnati. So, not a fan. Probably never will be. But he did pick up some good wins, went four sets in all of the matches he played, fought, and beat Denis Shapovalov. And another takeaway from this is maybe Shapo lost first round in both of these tournaments. He's 22 and 17 on the year now. He was 17 and 15 last year. For a prodigious talent, a guy who has every tool to be a world number one and is in the world top 10 right now, that's just not impressive. And he's 22 years old now. So I'm not going to be the guy to hop off the Shapo wagon. And we've seen so many stretches like this before. But man, it is just wild from him. And it would be very nice to see some more consistency for such just uh, an otherworldly talent. Other than that, Yannick Sinner was a little bit disappointing. If we're going to shout out other young guys, you can't hold it against him. He's been so much more consistent, but he only won... One match out of these two tournaments. So, I really think the standouts are the four guys who I mentioned. They're the four guys who are going to be the primary challengers to Novak Djokovic. Four tremendously talented players who all have the tools to play at this level in their own ways. And are finally really consistently putting it together. If I had to pick the guy who's the biggest threat right now, it's such a good question. Glad you asked, Carson. That's tough. You know, I love Rublev. Mentally, I don't think he has it. He finally beat Medvedev, finally beat Medvedev, which was just massive in Cincinnati. 
But he talked about how he has a mental block against Zverev, too. It seems like the guys he's known for a long time, he just can't get over the hump. And I'll be honest, against Novak Djokovic, that doesn't bode all that well if you have any sort of mental weakness. Sitsipas had his chances against Novak up two sets in the French. Clearly wasn't able to finish there. He's been playing unbelievable tennis, but that doesn't bode all that well. Zverev, Lord knows I don't trust him. And Medvedev, last time I bet on him, he got dismantled. So you know what? <laughs> If Djokovic is at his best, it probably is still hopeless for these other guys. My favorite, based on the tennis they're playing right now, I want to say Zverev. Zverev obviously just beat him in the Olympics, but like, there's no way I'm trusting Alexander Zverev to beat Novak Djokovic in a best-of-five match. Are you kidding me? I'm not clinically insane. But I do think he's playing the best tennis. Maybe Medvedev's the guy because he's a robot who also happens to get angry, but I just trust him mentally a little bit more. So, we'll see. It's going to be fun. It'll be great to see the draw also and see how many of those challengers he has to go through. But I think obviously some people will point at this and say, okay, you didn't have to beat Rafa or Fed, whatever. Some people may put whatever asterisk they choose on that very well. But if these guys are playing at the level I expect them to and he has to go through them, I don't know. I, I don't think you can say this is any less impressive than a ton of other slams that have been won in history because that's the thing. We've started to judge them by such a high standard where you have to beat some combination of Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Andy Murray for it to be a legitimate slam title. That's pretty crazy. And if you beat three players who are top five caliber in the world and are playing unbelievably well right now, that's a slam. That's a slam. And it's a little different than Team and Zverev last year when both of them were just trying to lose that match and none of the big three were there. So it's going to be really fun to see how that all plays out. On the women's side, Ash Barty just continues her reign of terror. I mean, it's unbelievable. And Cincinnati didn't drop a set. Five titles on the year now, 40-7. and seven. Obviously, was fantastic in Wimbledon. And I think this is the best she's ever been. And uh, one of my foolish takes before the year was Ash Barty was going to drop out of the top three in the world. Terrible take. I mean, she is just so much more consistently dominant than anybody else out there. And it's not that it's every single tournament, but man, dude, she just dissects people. She just dissects people. And uh, she's now 3,000 plus points up on Sabalenka for world number one. That's another thing. Sabalenka passed Osaka. Now she's two. Osaka's three. And Barty is just maybe on another level. I still think Osaka on her best day is certainly better, but Osaka's got to have more of her best days. And shout out to Jill Teichman, who was in the final and who beat Osaka to get there. Unbelievable run, beat Benchich and Pliskova as well. But to me, it's always going to stand out more from Osaka's end because shout out to Teichman. But, you know, she's 24 years old. She was world number 76 headed into the tournament. Now she's 44. I like her game. I think that she's got good margin. She's got those loopy strokes, but a lot of topspin on them. She moves well. She plays hard. She'll run down balls. She places the ball well. She's got some nice angles. But do I ever look at her and think, oh, what an overwhelming talent. Oh, she's the story here. No. And in another Osaka match, and you know, obviously Osaka's still just getting back into the rhythm after she took some time off due to mental health stuff. But in that third set, Teichman was down love two, love 30. Osaka had a chance to go up love 40, and then in all likelihood capitalize, make that a double break in the third set. She had a backhand approach, and... Uh, she fired at cross-court. Teichman guessed right. She anticipated it, and Teichman hit an okay pass down the line, but 
it wasn't right down the line, and Osaka could have been there and probably knocked off a volley, but I guess she just thought that she had hit a winner, and that was the turning point, and she got upset with herself throughout that match. Understandably so, frustrating loss, but I just don't know when I'll ever be able to fully make sense of Naomi Osaka, because I think she's so clearly the most talented player in the world right now, and maybe I would say Bianca Andreescu is second, but I'd probably be crazy to say that. I'm probably holding on to 2019, because Andreescu was... One and two over these two tournaments as well and was disappointing as she has been all year and since she came back from injury. So again, maybe I'm clinging to the past there. But regardless, I think Osaka is in that number one spot right now. She's got four slams and she's won back-to-back slams twice and she's been world number one and all these things. But it would just be nice to see it a little more consistently. And I don't know when that'll be the case and we'll see if it ever is. So that's what we saw in Cincinnati, really. Montreal... Camila Georgie won. That's not fun to me. I'm not going to be a broken record every single episode and talk about the instability at the top of women's tennis and how much more we need reliable stars there. I guess I actually just was a broken record, but I'm just going to say when a 29-year-old who was world number 71 goes out there and wins the tournament and isn't some stunningly exciting player and doesn't beat some crazy row of champions to do it, I just don't care as much as I care about seeing the best players in the world out there. And this just doesn't happen on the men's side. Felix Mantilla was the last guy like this on the men's side. We are like, whoa, he won a Masters 1000, and that was in 2003, and he was still a top 50 guy, and he had been a top 10 guy previously. And uh, Georgie is just a really solid all-around player. She's solid from the ground. She's nice forehand, nice backhand, good mover. Just a solid tennis player. But at the end of the day, that's not overly exciting to me. So other than that, Coco had a nice run to the quarters. Pagula made the semis. You like to see that. Those are a couple of favorites here on down the line. Very exciting players stylistically. But we'll see what happens in the U.S. Open. Because on the women's side, Lord knows what to expect. You think Barty and Osaka are a cut above everybody else right now, but you just never know. You never know the likelihood of us seeing... The actual two best players in women's tennis facing off in a final right now feels like one in a million. And if we did, I would rejoice in the streets. I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled. But I'm not going to put my money on it because we just haven't seen that kind of consistent dominance at the top of the sport in several years. So we'll see what we do get. This was a fun couple weeks, obviously. You get a lot of good tennis in a short time. We still have Winston-Salem going on, which is fine. It's a tune up to the U.S. Open that'll get a good enough draw. But really, now we're just getting ready to see what we witness. Are we going to see history on the men's side? Are we going to see Djokovic affirm himself as, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time and establish this as one of the greatest years ever? Maybe not the greatest because of some of the slip-ups we've seen outside of the slams. I just don't know. We'll see what form he's in. Obviously, last time we saw him was very strange, playing no tune-ups to the U.S. Open. A lot of mystery, a lot of intrigue going into that, which I think is going to make the storylines a little bit more fun because I still think he's the overwhelming favorite, but God only knows what's going on with that guy. So lots of fun stuff to look forward to as always. So stay tuned in for that. Enjoy the tennis that is ahead this week. With that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. This was Down the Line. Hope you enjoyed.